Happy Mother's Day. Um, just a note, the day after Mother's Day, that's not Mother's Day, okay? So call mom. Please don't forget, not tomorrow, but today. It's Sunday. You have time. Um, so we are going to be working our way through 1 Kings. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Please grab one. Uh, I will pray for us, and we will dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. You are God here. You are the king here. I, I pray from, from, from the life of Elijah, we would see uh, not how awesome Elijah is, but how great and glorious and wonderful you are, Jesus. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You are the God who's going to light up this altar uh, in uh, 1 Kings 18, and you're the God who sends the Holy Spirit to light up this church. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would understand who you are. We would see our sin. We would turn from it. We'd see the schemes of the enemy and the schemes of the world, and we would turn from those, and we would see who you are, Jesus, and we can only do that if you would send us your Holy Spirit to move in our lives, and, and we just live in this dependence now, and I just pray for your presence here with us, God. We love you, God, and we pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. First uh, Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 20. Um, so we have been working our way through the life of Elijah, who's one of the sort of big player prophets in the Old Testament. And I think the thing that we can't say often enough is that as we look at the life of Elijah, that we don't reduce it to simplistic terms. Uh, there is an old biker foam dome hat. It's a black hat, and on it it says, good guys wear white. Uh, it's about as straightforward, reduced a as possible. Uh, but what we need to see in the Old Testament is not a bunch of heroes like Elijah who we just need to follow all the time and, and always, always just use his example. I mean, he's a guy that God straight up will put down for a nap in a few chapters, right? Like, it's not him that's on the move, it's God. And so the point of studying this text is not just seeing Elijah, who we do want to emulate at times, but really to see the God who Elijah worships, the God of the Bible who we know is Jesus. Um, and this week we're going to see this great showdown, um, this showdown between two uh, opposing sides, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and we're going to see them have sort of a sacrifice off. Um, I don't know a better way to put, I don't have categories for what happens here today, um, but what I think is a really beautiful thing that happens here is that we have a really beautiful picture from the Old Testament of what revival is. And this is an important thing for us to understand here in Seattle. And Thanks. Uh, so the, the thing about it is, is if you grew up in the Pacific Northwest like me, um, the word revival is a foreign term uh, that is the thing that your friend's punk rock band puts in the name when they stop listening to punk rock and start doing Johnny Cash covers. Then you put revival in the name and you sing different music. Uh, if you come from the Northeast, if you come from the Bible Belt in particular, a revival is something somebody puts on. It's a thing where you throw up a tent and you have an evangelistic thing. I am pro-evangelistic things. Don't get me wrong. But what I think we need to see is revival is not something human beings do. Revival is something that God does. Revival is something that God does when the gospel becomes real in the hearts of his people. Revival is what happens when we don't just know in our minds, but believe in our hearts that the transcendent God of the universe who made everything became a man, enters into human history in unlikely ways to save sinners like us from both dead religion and from our wiling out and, and from whatever it is that we want to do and from our lives worshiping pretend gods and trying to be our own gods. And that that thing uh, isn't just something you sort of think about when we come together on Sunday, but that's the fresh air that you 
you breathe into your heart when you wake up tomorrow morning. And the gospel becomes real. And the God of the universe, God the Father, who loves you more than you can imagine, becomes real. And that Jesus Christ has made you more free than you even understand becomes real. And the Holy Spirit, God's actual presence with you, He's more present than you even know because He indwells you in your heart. It says so in the Bible, becomes a reality to you. That when you pray, you pray knowing someone hears. And when you pray for the sick, you anticipate that the God of the universe, not your eloquent prayers, but the God of the universe is actually going to make them better. And that if he doesn't, he's going to be enough for them. That's revival. I want revival. Revival happens in a person's life, in a church, in, in good times. It happens in a city or in a region or in the whole world. This is the kind of thing that I don't just want for Anchor Church or just my family. I want it for me. I want it for my family. I want it for my kids. I want it for you. I want it for Mike Kelly in Green Lake Prez. I want it for Jordan Taylor in Calvary Chapel across the street. Right? I want it in the city. I want this to be the reality of our city. And I think it is helpful for us to look at this incident, incidents and see in the scriptures what it looks like. Because I think we get a really big, clear, uh, just such a clear picture that revival uh, is not something we do, but God does. And at the same time, in these times of revival, there's just this clear evidence uh, that there is a part that we play. And really, in this the, kind of the word picture we're going to see is that in times of revival, we build the altar, but God brings down the fire. That's the big thing I want us to see, is that we build the altar, but God brings down the fire. And I'll show you what I mean. Uh, let's start in verse 20 of 18, 1 Kings. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel. So the scene is, is that Elijah prayed, we're told in James chapter 5, and it stopped raining for three and a half years. Elijah has shown back up to confront Ahab, uh, this wicked, nasty king who's brought all this kind of idolatry into the people of God, and he shows up, and him and Ahab begin to kind of have it out. So in verse 20, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said... How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You're either in or you're out with the God of the Bible. You're either in or you're out with Jesus. Follow him or follow the other thing. Now that doesn't mean that we aren't sanctified and we aren't changed and, and, and seeing Jesus clear isn't a process. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is you can't have a love of stuff and a love of God at the same time. That you can't love money and love God at the same time. Jesus says so. Jesus says so, I go with him. And the people did not answer him. They're called out. They're convicted. They keep their mouth shut. They did not answer more. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. He's setting it up. He wants to make it abundantly clear. From a worldly standard, 450 versus one. A small army versus one guy, right? He goes on. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull from the, for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, if you see in your Bible as you're reading the Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the proper name for God in the Old Testament, when he says the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And God, the God who answers by fire, he is God. 
450 to 1. Okay? If you're, if you're into betting, you bet on 450 versus the 1, right? Don't bet. Right? It's not a betting thing. It's not statistics. It's not odds. So, so the thing is here, but you want to see it, right? He's setting it up. And he says, okay, so they pick the, the bowl they want to pick. When I was a kid, when my parents didn't want to scoop ice cream, they sent me and my sister up. One of us got to scoop. One of us got to pick. Why? To make sure it was even, right? Fine. Here are the bowls. You guys pick. 450 to 1, you pick the bowl. Uh, he wants to make it abundantly clear that the, the odds as far as the world are concern, is concerned is stacked in their favor. Let's be clear. It only makes sense that it's going to work out for them. It only makes sense that it's going to work out for them. And Elijah comes in here um, with this kind of confidence uh, that we can often misplace. And again, this is the oversimplistic reduction. If you miss this, this is not confidence in himself. Right? I don't care how confident you are in yourself, if you think you can make fire rain down from heaven, I'm going to call you crazy. Right? He's not confident in himself. And we have this sense, I think, um, uh, I, I was trying to think the best metaphor, right? we have this sense, uh, every movie I had didn't work, right? To try and put a reference of the confidence that is here uh, that you would actually know, because my dad just watched weird old movies, and I don't know anything about anything. Uh, but there's a great film called Streets of Fire that you probably shouldn't rent, because I haven't watched it in a long time. Uh, a punk rock band comes into a punk rock uh, uh, gang walks into a diner. There's a guy sitting at the diner. They pull out a butterfly knife. Don't get one. They're illegal in Washington State. They pull out a butterfly knife in the movie. The guy slaps the guy, takes the butterfly knife away, puts it back, gives it back to the guy and says, I'd like to see you try that again. Right? We read these scenes and think John Wayne bravado. We read these things and think Elijah is the man. I think Elijah's got a tummy ache. When was the last time you stood up against 450 prophets of Baal? Right? Like I said, he's a guy that God puts down for a nap. He is a human being like you and me. And I think in 20th century Christianity, we've almost picked up the sense of professionalism where you're like, well, call in the guy who's confident in himself and knows how to do stuff. He's the guy for the job. And it seems like every time, God always goes for the guy that's least likely. Elijah is least likely. Moses is a stuttering fugitive. Abraham is a Babylonian dude who's never even heard of God when he comes for him. Gideon hides, right? God likes to use the unlikely people so that he can make it abundantly clear that it is him who is moving. It's him who's moving. And we try and act so strong and so tough or defer to someone else who seems strong and tough and feel like if we ever have to do something hard uh, that it's not good if you've got a tummy ache, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. Let the guy who thinks he's got it going on do it. I don't want to have that hard conversation with that guy. Uh, I know I need to, uh, but my stomach hurts. And, and the guy who does the, the hard talks, he seems like he's so confident in it. Honestly, if you're confident in it, if you're confident that you can sit down with someone and show them what the Bible says about Jesus and what they're doing and that they're different and that you can convince them, you're the wrong guy for the job. It's actually the guy who knows, I have a friend who's in a lot of trouble, who's wandering from Jesus, and only God can do the miracle here. And I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit. This is not confidence in self. This is not John Wayne uh, uh, bravado. To be a prophet is to be someone who has a lot of confidence in the God who made everything out of nothing. That's what it is to be a prophet in the Old Testament. They're the guys who really, really believe God does amazing things. Even Jonah. 
Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to get saved, so he runs away and at the end says, I knew you were going to save them because you're the God who does that kind of stuff. Right? He had so much confidence in God that God was going to accomplish the thing that he didn't even want to have happen that he ran away. That's where we need to roll. Let's keep going. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So we're going to go out. We're going to get some bowls. We're going to set up some altars. And we'll see what God wants to do. And everyone's like, okay. Baal's been kind of cool to worship. We still like the God of the Bible, God. He seems cool too. And, and yeah, that seems reasonable. If fire comes down from heaven, that sounds like God. Uh, it's also work, worth noting that one of the things that uh, Baal is known for, uh, there are a lot of different uh, gods who get that name attached. It's the Hebrew word for owner, blah, blah. But what you need to know is the one that we're probably talking about here at Mark, Mount Carmel on the Phoenician border. It's right by where people have been worshiping this pretend god. What's one of the things that he's the god of? Fire. So it's even home court advantage. Your god's the god of fire. Let's do fire. You got 450 prophets. I got one. You pick the bull. And all Elijah said to the, uh, and then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, "Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, uh, but put no fire on it." And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, "O Baal, answer us!" But there was no voice, and no one answered. There was no voice. And no one answered. Here's the thing about pretend gods, idols, false gods. You can make a pretend god about, out of just about anything, whether it's you, whether it's uh, money, whether it's power, whether it's objectifying human beings, whether it's gratification or immorality, whatever it might be, you can make a god out of just about anything. Um, but it turns out when you actually need your pretend god the most, they can't help you. When you've made money god in your life, and it's wrecked your friendships, or it's wrecked your marriage, or it's wrecked your relationship with your kids, money cannot serve you to fix the things that you've wrecked in the worship of that thing. If money's God for you, and you put money as the primary thing in your life, and you just try and pay your kids off, at some point in time, that breaks. And no amount of money can make up for all the time that you spent doing something other than loving your kids. It will not answer you. It will not help you. And you could do that again and again, and you can move around to all the different pretend gods, and you can see, wow, that pretend god really served, that, that people-pleasing god really served that person in that time. It really made them feel good that they were able to make all these other people happy and find affirmation from those other people, but when it turns out that finding affirmation from two different people created two different uh, opposing views that didn't work out. You can't make everybody happy all the time, it turns out. Uh, and then they both are angry at you. It turns out that you can't people-please your way into feeling good about the fact that your false gods failed you. There was no answer. It's a pretend God, that's why. And at noon, so from morning till noon, they've been doing this all morning, 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying... Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, and I did check this in the Hebrew, by the way, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and should be awakened. Perhaps he's taken five on a bathroom break. Maybe he's writing a poem. Perhaps he's taking a nap. Maybe you should wake him up, because there's no fire. 
uh, this, is, this is an interesting thing because uh, at this point in time in history, um, the, the pretend gods, the idols that people worshipped, oftentimes people attributed this level of anthropomorphic, human-like things to. It's not actually weird that a god would write poems or go out hunting, but always known as a hunter, he'd go out hunting, prancing around. I don't know where a pretend god hunts, but he's out prancing around hunting, and he could be busy, and he could be occupied, and he could be somewhere else. And so the things he's actually saying aren't actually uh, completely, well, some of them might be, the potty break one might, uh, but they're not necessarily completely offensive to their idea of God, except for the idea of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 uh, a burning bush appears. Moses, I want you to tell my people I've heard their cries. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who shall I say sent them? I, I am who I am. God is being. God is. He's, he's ineffable. He's outside. He's transcendent. Uh, and because Baal is a pretend God, they attribute these human-like things to him. But he's saying these things because the God of the Bible is so different and so far from this anthropomorphic stuff that it's a mockery to them. Now, what's amazing about this is that when transcend, the transcendent God of the universe actually became a human, and the second, the second member of the Trinity becomes Jesus, born into human history, his movement is so divine that nobody can recognize him as God. Right? Because if you look at the pantheon and the sweep of early myths, it's all about Inky or Zeus or whomever uh, doing human-like things. It's basically if you imagine um, uh, if you gave you know the old if you had a thousand if you had three wishes what would you wish for? Uh, well, I first wish for a thousand wishes or infinite wishes or whatever, and you run around having this person do whatever. It turns out most human beings when you give them that kind of power or that that daydream they do whatever they want to do, right? They do even malevolent things, right? They go buck wild if there's nothing stopping them because when we're at the center of everything and you actually gave us the power to be the pretend God that we always want to be, we while out. And yet the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, comes in a manger in the form of a servant who sets aside his divine rights to live the life we were supposed to live, to die in our place. He doesn't come and while out. He dies in our place to save us from ourselves and what he does is so unrecognizably divine. It's so far out of the human imagination that no one even recognizes that it's God in the flesh. Amazing. Nobody, no, no, we, don't even have a, we don't have a framework to imagine a God like that who would do that. It doesn't even make sense to us. They didn't even recognize him. The one who'd been, they'd been waiting for, they didn't even recognize him. I don't know this, how this happens to me every Mother's Day, but here we go. Verse 28. This is kind of gross. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves. And they're cut after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, not that you've necessarily looked at Deuteronomy 14.1, but in the King James translation, this word uh, is translated tattoo themselves, uh, which is one that has often been used by, by certain Christians to say that Christians shouldn't get tattooed. Uh, what Deuteronomy is actually talking about is this kind of a thing. What God's saying is, don't do this, please, guys. Don't do this. And it's not hard to hear that and say, yes, sir. Um, but they're, doing, they're, they're, they're trying to do some kind of magic. They're trying to do something uh, that, that, that draws power down. And they're desperate at this point in time. It's noon. And so they, they do this horrible thing. Verse 29. And as midday passed, noon comes and goes, 
they raved on until the time of the offering of the obligation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I think it's really fascinating that the author of 1 Kings used the word for what they're doing uh, back up in 26. It says limped. They, they limped around the altar, which is the same word that Elijah used to the people. He said, there you go, limping. Don't go limping between two opinions. This thing that's just happened is a word picture for the absurdity for God's people to turn from God to their sin. It's a word picture. Don't do it. it only, sin only brings death. Do not do it. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Because no one answered and no one paid attention. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. I, I think when you look in the pattern of, of what we'll call revival over history, by the way, if you want a really, really good book, and I'll have, um, I'll have my assistant put it on the city, uh, there's a book called A God-Sized Vision by, uh, I think it's Colin Hansen. Amazing book, just looking at these different instances of revival in history. We'll, we'll put it up, and you can, you can get it. It's a great book, or borrow it from me. It's really good. Um, there, there's this pattern and, and one of the patterns is a lot of times people dust off stuff that they just forgot about. They dust off the Bible and say, hey, why did we forget about this thing? Uh, it happens in, in Ezra. They dust off the law and they're like, oh, where did this thing come from? Oh, crud. Okay, let's repent. Um, Doctrines get unearthed. Things like the doctrines of grace that says that you know that it's God who loves you first. Right? Dusting off the reality that, that there is a triune God, Jesus who came into history, and now the Holy Spirit, because of His cross, indwells you and lives inside of you. That's, that's just Romans 8. That's not like hidden manuscripts. That's just Romans 8. But we dust it off and we're like, hey... Look, it's the gospel. Oh, Jesus saves sinners. That is amazing. And, and I think this happens. We have to begin to clear out the crud. Uh, I'll, I'll just put it on the table too. A lot of my understanding of ri revival first comes through a guy named Tim Keller in New York, but ultimately through his influence, seeing how he's influenced by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in England who died in 1981. His sermon series on revival from 1956. If you are a sermon listening person, I would highly recommend you pick that thing up. But one of the things that happens is we begin to clear out the crud. And so Elijah comes back to this altar and begins to put the rocks back. Because I think revival happens in God's people. And Elijah took the 12 stones that they had neglected to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. Jacob has a name changed by God. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Uh, it's worth noting that one of the common the common ways this phrase back in 20, the people of Israel is translated, that, that in the Hebrews, Ben Israel, the sons of Israel. 
So the sons of Israel, the sons of this guy who actually knew God have been worshiping this pretend God. And what's happening in this revival, he's not bringing a new teaching. He's bringing the old teaching. He's reminding them of who they are. In times of revival, it's not that God's people hear something new. There's rarely something you could throw a conference about or write a book about. What happens is God's people remember that Jesus is the king of the universe, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, loved more than we can possibly imagine by him, completely forgiven for our sins, and invited into the work of sharing the reality of God and the gospel with the world. And we forget that. And then he reminds us. And we're like, oh yeah, that's who we are. And that's revival. He's just reminding them who they are here. This part gets awesome. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seeds. A bunch of water is what it's saying. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And then he did it, and then they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And then they did it a third time. And the water ran over the altar and filled the trench with water. Let's be clear. There are no fancy tricks. He's not an illusionist. He doesn't have like a pedal that's going to light the thing on fire. Cover it with water. And I think this is also something that happens in times of revival. When people actually unearth the doctrines of grace and they begin to say things like, yeah, it's Jesus' blood who cleanses you from your sin. And people are like, if you talk about blood, they're going to be grossed out. Don't do that. And you're like, no. The doctrines of God to the world will seem like pouring water on the altar. If you have a more palatable message, they will come and they will love it and they will come and feel good about who they are. And to the world, the doctrines of God and of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit can seem like water poured on the altar. And a church living authentically in the gospel can seem like water poured on the altar. And the leaders of the church living as servants who wash the feet of the church can seem like water poured on the altar. And you go down the list and it just seems like you're making it seem uh, 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 further and harder. And it's just a bad business plan. It's a bet. I have a better business plan for you. I have a better message for you, says the world. And we say, no, I'm cool with the water because it's not about how good I am. Pour some more water on it. Let's be clear who lights up the altar. We build the altar. God lights it on fire. At the time of the offering of the obligation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, what I love about this, he uses both the proper name of God and then he gives this really common Old Testament thing, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. But what he's saying is, let's be clear who I'm dialing. Let's be clear who I'm talking to. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant. <laughs> let's be clear here. He's God, I'm not. And in fact, he says this, and that I've done all things by your word. Your God, I'm not, and I'm just doing what you told me to do. I'm just delivering the mail today. And I think this is the, like, I mean, you want to talk about signature, what happens in times of revival. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. You have shown yourself to them. You have brought them back. You're the good shepherd who loves them. You're the one. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell. 38. Then the fire of the Lord, proper name for God, fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. All the odds are against him. God doesn't seem to think that's a problem. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And mind you, these are people who may have even been rooting for the other guys a minute ago. Right? This is not faithful Israel. This is idol-worshiping Israel who came out to see what might happen. Because, yeah, this is good. Let's see what happens, how it goes down. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I think this is a picture of revival. That God's people in desperate times dust off what is the truth against all odds and against whatever the world says and they put the altar back together and they're so faithful to God and so confident in God and not themselves that they're not afraid to, he's not afraid to just pour the water on it. Bring it. Pour it. I know. It doesn't make any sense to my neighbors. Pour it. I know it doesn't make any sense to my coworkers. Pour it. I know it doesn't make sense to mom. Pour it. It doesn't make sense to dad. Pour it. I know it doesn't make sense, but here's what I do know, that Jesus is the king of the universe. Pour on the water. Pour on the water. We build the altar. He lights it up. He lights it up. If God's going to move big in your life, it's not because you can force it. Uh, we need to understand this here. And I, I think I originally saw John Calvin say this, and I still cannot find the reference, so I want to give him credit, but I have no idea where the heck he said this. Uh, that God the Holy Spirit moves with us, without us, and in spite of us. So, so this means that sometimes he moves without us. Uh, myself and three friends had a close friend who was about to make what we, what we consider was probably the biggest mistake of his entire life. The three of us got together, we sat around, we talked about it, we prayed about it. Yeah, let's do it, we're going to talk to him. This is years ago, by the way, and I've since repented. So, and to him, by the way. Let's talk to him, we got to talk to him. We don't. The day comes, the day goes, what we assumed was probably the biggest mistake of his life comes and goes, and none of us actually talked to him about it. A month later, we get an email from him. We had kind of been cut out of the life of his life a little bit. We get an email from him a month later that says, that was going to be the biggest mistake of my life, and God saved me from it. And when we got that email, my friend looks me right in the face and says, God wanted us to talk to him about that, and we didn't. We need to ask God's forgiveness for disobeying him, and praise God because he's God. God will work without us. He invited us in to do the thing that he wanted to do. We chose not to do it. God still got the job done. Okay? He worked without us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that it's not all on our shoulders. You need to know that he actually, it's, it's, it's both a, a good warning to realize, oh, man, I can miss the fact that, that he's invited me in. But it's also really good news that you can really, 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 really drop the ball and God still gets the job done. Thank you, Jesus. Just for the record, because he's God and you're not. The other thing is that he works in spite of us, and this one's really hard for us as pragmatic Americans. We are so outcome-based 
that we assume if there are outcomes, then it must be God's favor and blessing. There is a man with a basketball stadium somewhere in a state far from here who gives motivational talks. I don't even think they call the thing a church. Doesn't mention Jesus and sells out the gospel anytime anyone asks him a hard question and does not preach from the Bible or about Jesus. And yet I've met people who go there looking for Jesus and get saved. Okay, so as Americans, we would say, well, he, he draws a huge crowd and people are getting saved. So I don't agree with his methods, but he must be doing something right. Is he? He's unfaithful to God every time they get together, which may or may not even be on Sunday, because they're very pragmatic. And I don't know, because I don't know him, but it is distinctly possible that despite the fact that there's a lot of fruit in something, that God's working, but in spite of the person. And we need to pay attention to that. If, if good stuff happens in our life, we don't take that as a blank check to do whatever we want to do. But in revival, God works with us. And again, he's not working with the champs. He's not working with the A-team. He's not working with you because you have a good resume or you have enough degrees. He's working with you because he loves you and he loves to glorify his son with us finite, broken failures. Because he is such a good dad. Right? And the thing is, is that when we say, God, we want to be in on what you're doing. You know, I don't know if you ever had that with your kids. You know, they want to help you do something dangerous. If you help me do that, you might get crushed by the tire we're working on, son. And yet there's something in a parent's heart that says, and I just want to invite you into the family thing. And I think when we say this to God, we say, I want to be involved in what you're doing in the world, God, that God says, I want to invite you into the family business. Oh, I've just been waiting. I don't know if you've ever worked in a family business. There's two kinds of guys that work in a family business. There's the guy who washes dishes and does a bunch of other stuff that he shouldn't do, but he knows his dad's never going to fire him. And then there's the guy who not... And you can have the other, you can have the Pharisee brother who does all the stuff in the family business so that dad will love him. He's working for it. Other guy does whatever because he knows God lo dad loves him. But then you get the other guy who actually just works hard at his job because he loves his dad and he loves the business and he loves what they're about because it's what they do as a family. And so, yeah, I, you're not going to do everything perfect on mission for God. Man, do I love being part of the family? And do I love being a part of what God's doing? And do I love watching the fire come down? When God does stuff, we're like, I didn't, how, what? You're awesome. And in times of revival, we say, we want to be in on what you're doing. And the thing we need to understand about revival is that there's this synergistic thing that happens. And we love categories. God's people, three things. In almost every revival situation, you see these three things happen. God's people deeply believe the Bible. God's people actually live it out. And the Holy Spirit's poured out in abundance. And so what we try and do as Americans, we kind of say, okay, well, if I'm faithful to the Bible and I work really hard at living a Christian life, then the Holy Spirit will be poured out. But the reality is, is that if you're reading your Bible and believing it and walking out, the Holy Spirit's already been poured out. 
right? In the Psalms, it says this phrase again and again, blesses the man who walks in the ways of the Lord. And we take that to mean blesses the guy who follows the Bible and God will give me some stuff. And what I think it actually says, that if you're walking in the ways of God, if you're walking in the gospel of Jesus and the freedom he's provided, you already are blessed. If you're reading the Bible and believing it, blessed. If you're in the family of God, blessed. If God is your Father and Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins and the Holy Spirit's indwelling you, you're blessed already. You already are blessed. And so we need to stop movement. And so then what does it mean then? Okay, with us, without us, in spite of us. What does it mean then if, if we want to be these people who believe the Bible deeply, who walk it out and have the Holy Spirit poured out? What are we after? What are the bricks? I think some of the bricks that we just need to see, and these will not be new to you if you're an old uh, anchor church person. Um, we've traditionally called these our five marks, word, worship, community, witness, and renewal. The reality is that we believe the Bible. We seek to know the Bible and trust God when we read the Bible that this thing is true. And that doesn't mean that we do, I didn't have a better word for it, but biblical gymnastics where you contort or move the Bible to just say whatever it is that you want it to say right? Uh, I've seen this again and again and again for people who, and I, don't get me wrong, I love social justice. I care for the poor in our city. Please bring diapers. We, we love these people. They're image bearers of God. Uh, your image bearers of God. God has made them in his image. We got to love some people in this city. So I'm not saying, I'm not anti-social justice, but what I've seen again and again and again, people will look and say, well, you guys are so into like meeting on Sunday and reading the Bible and worshiping and singing songs. We're after doing the real stuff of religion because you know what true religion is? True religion is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. You know what happens at the rest of that verse when you take the whole verse? James says, this is in the book of James, true religion is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and remaining unstained from the world. It's a both and. Holy Bible, Jesus singing, God worshiping life that pours out because you're receiving the love of God, pours out onto other people. It starts from that holiness and what he's done because you're not serving them to feel good about yourself. You're serving them as an outflow of the love of the God of the universe and Jesus Christ. No Bible gymnastics. No dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy is where you take the Bible and you believe it deeply and don't do any of it. Or you only do the things you like. That's particular orthodoxy. Right? You do the stuff you like. Not the rest of the stuff. Uh, don't be drunk with much wine. Okay, check. Seek the higher gifts. Whoa, no, that's weird. I'm staying out of there. Uh, the elders of the church should lay hands on people, anoint them with oil, and pray for their healing. It's in the Bible. If you're sick, we want to pray for you and ask that the God who is the great physician, Jesus Christ, would heal you by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we get uncomfortable like, nah, I kind of like this one part, but I don't really like this other part. We actually want the whole thing. And we believe deeply the truth of God, and we live in worship. We live with our whole lives an expression of an outflow of that love for him. That means we come together. When the church comes together, we are the people of God and we sing because he's real and we sing because Jesus is risen from the dead and there's something awesome that happens when we gather and there's something that awesome happens when we scatter and we want to avoid a pendulum that says, all life is worship, so I'm not going to spend time with the church or I'm going to spend time with the church and then uh, you know, Monday night football is where I worship the Seahawks and do whatever uh, rather than a whole life of worship. Uh, rather than You can actually worship while watching the Seahawks. It's actually good I'm so I'm told anyway, because I don't. <laughs> you can keep your eyes on Jesus and the game. I, I would say poetry or music, because that's my thing, but it's the truth. It's all worship. And it, but it, at the same time, there's something special that happens when we gather. And as an outflow of all this, we do this in community. 
You can't actually one another one another unless you're one anothering one another. You can't actually one another people unless you're saying, I take responsibility for this people and this people are taking responsibility for me. You can't actually love the church and serve the church unless you say, I want to love and serve the church. And you honestly probably won't have what it takes to love and serve the church unless you let the church love and serve you. You'll just be poured out and empty and God wants to love you and bless you through the church too, by the way. And we live as a witness of the truth of the gospel. When we live this life as Bible-believing people, as word-believing people, and as we live as worshiping people, and we do that in community, guess what happens? Not only do we get to do the thing where you tell your coworkers or your friends, this is why I believe what I believe, this is why I get up at the crack of 9.30 or 10 o'clock or 10.30 if you're an anchor church to get there late or whatever. I'm not calling anybody out. I'm just saying... You... <laughs> I'm just saying it doesn't make sense why I didn't sleep until noon, right? I come on purpose because I'm going to be with God's people because we're going to talk about King Jesus and that's where the Holy Spirit, and he's with you too, but like the Holy Spirit's going to meet us here and show us some stuff and it's going to be awesome. And there's something beautiful that happens when these things are happening that not only do you get to go and tell everybody, tell your barista, tell the guy in the elevator, tell your neighbor, tell your friends the truth of the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners, that Jesus makes us free, but there's also something that happens when people actually look and they're like, why, is the, why are you loving that person who doesn't look or act like you in any way, shape, or form? Capital J, capital E, capital S, capital U, capital S. Jesus, that's why. And we're into renewal. I want to see your life come alive in the gospel, and I also want to get after the death that is all over our city. There are people who are just the materially, in a material way, like just bleeding out. The fact that we have to buy diapers, I mean, the fact that there's a need for us to buy diapers for parents who don't have them should tell us there is a city that is in great need. Right? Someday I'm going to tell you guys the stories of my man in Cusick, Washington, 300 people and the great need that is there soon, this month. It sounds like epic. Soon. <laughs> right? Because there's people in Cusick who need us, and you've never even heard of Cusick. You may have, but you probably haven't, right? But Devin Lorraine's there serving his guts out. He needs your prayer, and they need help, okay? And, and, and Pastor Joseph in India, who we support with a handful of American greenbacks, we support him, we support his wife, we support his baby, we support his church in urban India, right? As a church, we do that. I don't know if you know that, but we do that. There's need there's spiritual need and physical need, and we get to partner, you know, partner, this sort of seems like the wrong word. We get to build an altar and ask God to rain fire down on the things that we do and pray that he just bless it. You're the church. How does this work out for us as the church? Something you need to see. This is the last thing you need to see, and we'll sing. So don't think, when we think building stones and sacrifice, yeah, this is a word picture of some rocks and a bowl. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is about the temple, about, about us as a temple, but I think it works for what we're talking about. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God through God in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We live our lives as a people who our life is the altar. Our life is the temple. Our life is the sacrifice as we die to ourselves and we live to Jesus and we live in the reality that Jesus has made us free and dependent on the Holy Spirit. And we walk in these things and we just ask God to light it up. That's what I want for our church. That's what I want for our city. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for your friends. That's what I want for your family. That's what I want for me. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't want to see us do a lot of stuff. I want to see you do a lot of stuff. Help us with our cultural lens as Americans. We, we sometimes mistake the stuff we do with the stuff you do. Yeah, we want to see some stuff happen because your Holy Spirit has been poured out. We, we desperately want to build the altar. We want to put those stones together. We want to desperately lay our life down and ask for your movement, God. We desperately want you to move. We desperately want tomorrow morning, and I pray this for our church, that tomorrow we would wake up and we wouldn't just uh, uh, have a passing idea, but that we would know that your mercies are new every morning and we are entitled to nothing, not the blood in our veins but in the, or the breath in our lungs, but that you've given them to us all and you've put in our hands your word, which is the truth. You've freed us from ourselves in your gospel. You've filled us with your Holy Spirit. God, please move in big ways that we would trust you. We'd believe you. We'd see this formed in our life. We'd help other people have this formed in their life and that you'd be magnified, Jesus, that you'd be real to us, that we'd taste and see that you're good and Jesus ultimately would just see you and live. We can only do this if you would pour your spirit out upon us. Please. Please answer our prayers. Please magnify Jesus, Holy Spirit, in our hearts. Jesus, please point us to the Father. Protect us from the enemy. Protect us from ourselves and protect us in the world. And may we not limp between two opinions, but just hold fast to you, our rock. We pray these things for your glory and for our joy and in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So now we'll, we'll transition to taking communion together. And, and we do this every week because we need to be reminded. We need to remember. When we look at this cross, when we look at this bread and this juice, Jesus' body broken and his blood shed, it's a reminder that the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's not anything that we have done, but it is all his work for us. It is by grace that we've been saved. And so when we come to take the bread and the juice. It is, it is that reminder that it's God's work, that in Jesus, he is the one who has done it. We are set free from sin, and we are set free to live in response to his gospel because of what he has done.
Um, so we come and we take it. If, if, if you are in Christ, if you say, yes, Jesus, the Lord, he is God, this is for you. Um, and, if, and if right now that happened for you, you can come and take this. It's an invitation to you. If the Lord is your God, um, this is for you. Um, so we take this as a people together to proclaim who we are, to proclaim to our, each other and to the world who God is um, and, and who we are because of who he is and what he has done. Um, so there's some regular bread and some gluten-free crackers there that you can dip in the juice. Um, and as we come, we come worshiping. Um, this, is, this is an opportunity to, to confess our sin where we've, where we've turned away and where we've, 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 we've not seen the reality of who God is. But then we come joyfully because he's, he's called us into himself um, as his people. Um, if you need prayer, if you have any burden, um, you need prayer, please don't go home without being prayed for. Please talk to, talk to me or Pastor Andrew or Pastor Mark or um, somebody that, that you've come with or somebody that you know. We want to we love each other and, and take each other to Jesus in prayer. Um, and if you have something that you believe that the Holy Spirit has given you for the church, um, please talk to me or, or one of the other pastors and, and we'll pray about it. And if we think it's for the, for the church, we'll have you share it. Um, and let's stand up and sing um, and worship Jesus together as his people.
of God in heaven. 
But is it on? It's on. Okay. Um, real quick, uh, I mentioned a couple resources, and then I can't find the thing. And I'll make sure to put those on the city. If you're not on the city, if you fill out one of these things, it's our, our way of connecting as a community um, online. So you can fill one of these things out. Or if you have any questions, where you can put it on there too. Drop it in the bloop right there, and we'll get back to you. Um, and I'll make sure all that stuff, Craig will put all that stuff on, on there for us today or tomorrow, or maybe the day after. But don't be too hard on him. Um, <laughs> I love you guys. I'm so thankful. I'm just going to read that last verse one more time and pray for us, and we'll get out of here. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Jesus, we just pray for this city. Um, We want to see this city changed, and only you can do that. (laughs) Help us to build the altar, but we know the water is all over the thing. But we're okay with that because we know you're the one that brings the fire. We pray for our neighbors, we pray for our friends, we pray for our coworkers, we pray for all the people in the city. They would see, Jesus, that you are king and you're a good king. And Father, that you're a heavenly, wonderful, amazing Father and Holy Spirit, you're present with us. And that God, you would turn people's hearts. And only you can do that. So we pray for your fire to come down on the altar that is Anchor Church and all the other churches in the city. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>